I'll be reading Fire in the Mountains by Ella Besmirched. Chapter 2 A whistle made Shoto look around and realize the landscape had changed a bit. The mountains were taller, and there were more rivers and streams spread out below them, and there was something else, too, something vast and man-made, carved into the side of the mountain. <clears throat> Hold on! Kotsky yelled over a sudden rushing of the wind. He didn't really need to speak, because the dragon had started to descend, and Shoto's hands found their way around Kotsky's waist without Shoto telling them to. Descending was far more terrifying than ascending had been. Kotsky leaned back against Shoto's chest and whooped with a shock of joy that would have made Shoto stare if he hadn't been so convinced he was seconds away from plummeting to his death. The dragon roared three times, and then the rapid descent turned into a leisurely circling and a casual glide. When Shoto's heart fell out of his throat, he realized there was a long, flat area carved into the castle-like structure they were angled for. As they dipped closer, Shoto realized there were two people standing on that structure, waving and yelling. The slider of the two was actually jumping up and down and Shoto could suddenly feel something from Kotsky. His casual slouch tightened, like his whole body was thrumming. Shoto only noticed because of the way they were sitting. Kotsky didn't let on that anything had changed. The dragon alighted on the long, flat stone, and Kotsky leapt from the dragon's neck. It was a long way down, and just before his feet touched the ground, he thrust both hands by his side and blasted the stone, slowing his fall, and allowing him to land lighter rather than thump to the ground. The two people who had been waiting plowed into him, and Shoto stared in absolute shock as Koski actually let them both, a man and a woman, hug him. You were gone for so long, the woman, a tiny little thing with short hair that looked pink in the setting sun, complained, furiously, hands fisted in Kotsky's clothes. It wasn't that long, the man, a blonde who smelled like ozone, even from here, said carefully, but I still didn't like it, he added when the woman looked at him. "'Where's the new boy?' the woman said, looking up and fixing her strange black and yellow eyes on Shoto. "'Ah!' she, and then she frowned. "'Oh.' Shoto stared down at his lap to keep from blushing and tried to figure out how to dismount. He heard Kotsky groan, but it was drowned out by his own gasp of shock when the dragon shifted and laid its head on the stone. The ground was closer now, but Shoto still wasn't sure. His thoughts ground to a halt, and he swallowed hard. Kotsky was offering him his hand, and something about the lack of a crowd, about these two people who had hugged Kotsky hello and complained about his absence. Something about all that 
made accepting Kotsky's hand here seem intimate in some way. Shoto blinked away the strange thought. It could be two people, or it could be fifty. This was still an audience, and he still had a part to play. He took the hand and allowed Kotsky to help him from the dragon's neck. When his feet touched the ground, the strange little woman bounded up to him and tilted her head to the side while she stared at him. Shoto didn't know what to make of her up close. For one, her hair was actually pink, and her eyes were fully black, like she'd poured ink into them, with bright yellow irises that reminded Shoto of wildflowers. She wore what appeared to be leather armor over her chest, and she had vials of all different sizes dangling from strings and rope around her waist. She stared very intently at Shoto's face, and then she said, I didn't think you'd be this pretty. Dinky, did you think he'd be this pretty? Shoto furrowed his brows. The woman actually lifted her hand like she would touch him, but Kotsky said, Leave him alone, Mina. He doesn't like to be touched. Mina dropped her hand with a frown and said, Well, that's no fun. Shoto very eloquently said, Uh. And then Mina said, Kiri, hurry up, I missed you. And Shoto thought she must truly be insane, because, of course, Kiri was back with the rest of the party. Except Mina was staring behind Shoto when she spoke, and she kept staring until Shoto finally looked around in alarm, and realized, somehow, the dragon had disappeared. And in its place was a familiar man with sharp teeth and red hair wearing a very familiar length of leather wrapped around his shoulders like a cloak. Shoto forgot to blink. Kiri stretched and groaned and then looked at Kotsky with a put-upon frown. You know what would have made that easier? Hmm? Kotsky asked, arms crossed over his chest. <clears throat> a fucking honey cake. Kotsky snorted. Mina looked between the two of them and said, Kotsky, did you make Hiroshima take you and your new boy all the way here without breakfast? He's fine, Kotsky said, pointing furiously. There were two of you, Kiri, Kirishima said jerking his chin at Shoto, who was still very busy trying to remember what blinking felt like. And now I'm tired, he said with a put-upon pout. I want honey cakes. We'll get some fucking... Kotsky started to say. Then he seemed to remember Shoto was there because he stopped talking, eyes on Shoto, and then everyone else looked at him too. Shoto said very dumbly, I didn't know you were a dragon. Kiri smiled at him, and it was so beautiful and so pleasant. Shoto actually felt himself relax, just a little bit. Sorry I didn't, didn't tell you, 
he said brightly. Koski doesn't want everybody to know what I look like in this form. Sneaky, huh? <clears throat> Shoto nodded. And then because he couldn't seem to make his brain think of real, intelligent questions, he said, Do you let everyone call you Kotsky? Kotsky shrugged and said, Just the people I'm married to. Shoto said, Oh. And then every single thought in Shoto's head fell out of his ears and landed in a jumble at his feet. Gotsky was looking at Mina now, who was beaming at him, and Danky actually took a step forward and wrapped his arms around Kotsky's waist and put his head on Kotsky's shoulder like a spoiled pet. And Kotsky, for his part, didn't seem to think anything was amiss, because he said, I'm glad you two didn't destroy the place while I was gone. Kiri, however, was watching Shoto, and he was the one who said, Wait a minute. Everyone looked at him. Kotsky, Kiri said slowly. Uh-huh. Kiri said very quietly to Shoto, No one told you? Shoto tried to remember how to close his mouth and instead just shook his head. How had this information not reached Enji? Or maybe it had, and maybe he just hadn't cared, or... No. No, Enji was too proud for that. Even if he hated Shoto, Shoto was still Enji's. There was still some pride in the Todoroki name, and there was no way Inji would ever agree to Shoto being the... How... How many of you are there? He asked weakly. Just us, Mina said brightly. Well... Kotsky glared at her, and she finished. Married. The fourth spouse. Prince Shoto Todoroki was the fourth spouse and third husband of the King of the Savages. Was this even legal? Clearly it was how Kotsky did things, but the ceremony had been performed by one of Enji's people. He could... Maybe he could just leave. Surely even Enji would take him, let him come back, if it wasn't a legitimate marriage. And they hadn't even, there was consummation to think about. And Shoto had known that in the eyes of his father's law, nothing was permanent until then. And he'd been counting on Kotsky not knowing that, or caring. But now this? Kotsky furrowed his brows and said, You really didn't know. But then he just shrugged like nothing had happened and said, This is Mina Ashido. She's from the Shale Slip tribes. And Denki Kaminari. He's from the Stormbreakers. They're one of the nomadic groups. And Kiri, well... Hijiro Kirishima, Kiri said brightly. Oh, I'm not a person, he added. 
I just pretend to be sometimes. Shoto swallowed. Prince Shoto Todoroki, Koski said sarcastically. He guessed for Mina and Denki's sake. He's even more stuck up than he looks, if you can believe that bullshit. Kotsky drawed. Mina frowned at him. Denki just nodded like Kotsky had said something profound. Kiri said, Well, that wasn't very nice. Kotsky rolled his eyes and gave Kiri a very pointed stare. Wasn't I going to get you some honey cakes? I think I deserve them. Kiri said brightly, I flew so far and I went really fast. And there were two of you, Kotsky. There were two. Did you leave all your things behind? Mina suddenly interrupted, looking at Shoto. Shoto just nodded mutely. That's okay, Mina said. I can still show you to where our room is. You look kind of tired. Did you boys sleep at all last night? She added, giving Kotsky a very pointed smirk. Kotsky deadpanned, like a baby. Mina frowned again. Oh. She still grabbed Shoto's hand like she would lead him away. Shoto actually missed most of this because the words, our room, were reverberating around in his head like some horrible ghostly echo. Our room. Our room. Mina cursed and dropped Shoto's hand, and Shoto didn't realize he'd done anything wrong until all of them looked at him at all the same time. And then he realized the hand Mina had been holding had gotten very warm, very fast, and Shoto wasn't really in the headspace to stop it. You... You can't. Kotsky took a step forward, and when he did, he actually yanked Mina behind him and pushed Denki even further back with his other hand. Fuck you say to me? You're not supposed to. If my father... I, I can't be... Kiri took a step closer to Kotsky. His skin looked strange all of a sudden, angular, almost like scales. Mina was holding one of her little vials in her hands, looking at Shoto with a strange expression on her face. That burnt lightning strike smell around Denki actually got stronger. Shoto shook his head, and then when he shifted on his feet, he heard ice crack. When he looked down, he found a thin layer forming under the toe of his boot. This would benefit no one, least of all if Shoto ended up dead. Four against one was a lot, even for him. And when one of those four was a dragon, and at least one, but probably two of the others was a powerful mage, Shoto took a deliberate breath and calmed himself. If he was going to survive at all here, he needed to stop letting his temper get away from him. Instead, he looked at Mina and said, I'd very much like to rest, please. It was like one giant exhale. Kiri's skin just looked like skin again. Mina grinned and let her vial fall. Kotsky went back to looking bored. 
Shoto still wasn't sure what Denki had done, but he relaxed too, wearing a happy, vacant look. Let's go then, Mina said cheerfully. Oh, and we have presents! Shoto swallowed and looked at her with a dumb, blank expression on his face. For you, silly, Mina said brightly. Shoto's stomach dropped. He had gifts for Kotsky, of course. His father has provided several, and Shoto was supposed to present him with the rest in private. He'd been too out of sorts to do it last night, so he just thought to give them to Kotsky first thing when his trunks arrived with the caravan. But he certainly didn't have any gifts for Kotsky's husbands and wife. The bastard had a bloody harem, for God's sakes. Shoto hadn't planned for this. No one seemed to notice that Shoto was currently cursing every god he knew. Instead, they were all stepping through a door wedged under a stone outcrop, carrying Shoto along with them like a leaf in a stream. It was much warmer inside. Firelight lit everything with a soft, pleasant orange glow, and the whole hallway smelled like fire smoke, without the cloying presence of the smoke itself. That was just about all Shoto could stand to notice as he was led through the labyrinth of merrily lit stone hallways. His thoughts had seemed to shut down around the repeated phrase, third husband, fourth spouse, third husband, third, third husband. It was a mantra so loud there was no other thought for anything else. Shoto only barely noticed the servants who would all stop what they were doing and bow deeply as the group of them walked past, or that Mina was chattering about what she and Denki had done to pass the time for the past two days, or even what pathways they were taking through the mountainous castle. Shoto didn't notice any of it. He only really began to look around when Kiri opened a door and the whole hallway suddenly went black. Instead of a pathway of smooth tan stone, they were walking through a corridor of rippled black glass. The whole tunnel seemed to be carved from the stuff, so instead of bricks or huge blocks, the entire hallway was unbroken. The floor was cross-hatched with careful score marks to keep them from slicking, slipping on the slick surface. Kiri opened another door, this one carved from thick, dark red wood instead of the cheerful pine that filled the rest of the castle, and they stepped into a room that made Shoto want to openly gape in amazement. He felt as if he'd stepped into the center of a dead volcano. The room was as big as any dining hall, and carved like the hallway was out of smooth black stone. But even in intervals along the walls, and in one massive circle tapered up in the middle of the center of the ceiling, the stone had been carved so thinly, the light from the outside shone through, casting the whole room in disorienting shadow. There were no fires burning, but it was still bright enough to see everything clearly. There was only one entrance 
the massive red door they had come through, and Kiri shut it behind them. The whole room was a miraculous feat of masonry magic. Shoto could smell the little pieces of power that had gone into creating it, but there was also fresher power here, too. Power he recognized from all four of the people surrounding him. Even Mina, he realized with a bit of a jolt. She wasn't a mage. She was something else. The decor was almost dizzying. The whole thing was divided into sections. Each little area had its own furniture, and a raised pallet packed full of blankets and pillows and various colored animal furs. Rooms, Shoto realized. A place for Mina, and a place for Denki, and a place for Kiri, and... Shoto turned his head a little, trying to pinpoint which place must have been Kotsky's. Perhaps the part closest to the door, with the red pillows and blankets and a massive black furniture. In the center of the room, under the circular window in the ceiling, was an enormous nest of pillows and blankets sunk into the floor. Shoto felt his cheeks heat at that, and couldn't think about it too hard. So instead, he looked at the low tables and chairs arrayed along the only wall left. The tables had books and parchment spread across them, and the chairs looked cozy, if primitive. Mina, Denki, and Kiri all darted into the room, and Shoto watched each of them walk over to their own space. Kotsky said in a low, secretive voice, I'll have a room prepared for you. A private one. Something about the way he said private made Shoto's skin crawl. But he realized Kotsky had meant the comment in kindness. That was in its own shock, even though it shouldn't have been at this point. Kotsky had made it very clear he was capable of small kindnesses when it suited him. Shoto swallowed a little heavily and said, Uh, I just mean you don't have to stay in here if you don't want to. Kotsky hissed, still pitching his voice low, but a little annoyed now, and added, You don't have to do anything if you don't want to. It almost felt like he blurted it, like maybe he'd wanted to say it, but had held his tongue. For some reason, it stoked a fire burning in Shoto's chest, and he hissed back, My lord, may I speak with you privately? Ha! Mina was bounding across the room, a leather case on hinges in her hand. Mina, Denki wasn't far behind Mina, and then Kiri too, and Kotsky's mouth closed with a snap. No one seemed to notice the tension between them. You get this part, Mina said excitedly and then grabbed Shoto's hand again and started dragging him to the section of the room farthest from the door. For now, Shoto allowed himself to be led. Dinky and Kiri came eagerly. Kotsky lingered by the door for a long time with his arms crossed over his chest and a foul expression on his face before he followed too. Here! Mina said cheerfully, and she stopped in front of what Shoto assumed was supposed to be his area. 
The furniture was bare and unadorned and solidly made. Shoto's eyes were on the pallet bed, however. Just like the others, it was little more than a slightly raised platform packed with pillows and furs, but it was the quality of the furs that caught his attention. They were snow white. Shoto could tell without touching them. Lusciously soft. These barbarians were fond of their furs. Shoto had noticed without really being aware of it. He had noticed the patterned browns and blacks on Mina's bed, and the unassuming blacks and grays of Dinky's. Kiri's furs were black too, or a dyed artificial red. Kotsky's were less specialized, but Shoto had noticed only splashes of copper fox furs that he'd seen so far amid the plush neutral colors. The only white fur Shoto had seen at all thus far was the fur that trimmed Kotsky's thick red cloak, and yet here was a bed full of it. There was also silk, the only silk Shoto had seen. Silk was scarce in this part of the world. The outland people traded for any they had, and since it was colder here and more rugged, their money was better spent on furs and wools. But Shoto had one of the low-slung chairs upholstered in rich blue silk, the color of sunlight on water. Shoto wasn't sure if he was supposed to say anything, didn't know what he could possibly say if he was supposed to, but Mina saved him. She pushed him in the low chair. The pillows weren't attached to the wood, and they slid a little as he fell into it. And then she shoved her leather case into his hands. Me first! Shoto peered down at the case and back up at Mina. Well, open it! And for some reason he looked at Kotsky. He was still glaring, looking aloof and annoyed, but when he saw Shoto looking at him, he shrugged one shoulder as if to say, Do what you want. Shoto wordlessly opened the case. Three glass bottles were nestled inside the box, which seemed a bit too big for what it contained. Shoto peered in confusion into the box and then looked up at Mina. This one she said, pointing to a round bottle full of some kind of pink liquid and a stoppered with a cork. It's a weapon. It's got two layers of glass, so it doesn't accidentally break. But you throw it. Armors, shields, stone, it'll eat through anything. Shoto peered a little more closely at the bottle, curiously, curiosity spiking. If he looked very closely, he could see magic glimmering in the viscous pink goo. But it wasn't any kind of magic Shoto knew or understood. This one, she said, pointing to the bottle in the middle, a slim tube-shaped one with a measure of thin brown fluid inside. It's your standard healing draft, but I put a little bit of something extra in there. If you've got any broken bones, you better set them first. Because this'll heal them, however they're sitting. Shoto leaned away from the box a little. A healing potion that could heal bone? Shoto had never heard of such a thing, and when he looked up at Mina again, he couldn't help a tiny spike of awe, and also a little fear grew in his chest. 
she made these herself? And this one here, Mina pointed to a triangular bottle with a sea green liquid inside, is pure energy, she enthused, spreading her hands when she spoke. It'll wake you up when you haven't slept, make your magic stronger, make you run faster. It should last for at least an hour, but everyone's a little different, she added with a shrug. And just like Mina, Shoto had no idea what to make of this gift. It was possibly one of the most incredible things anyone had ever given him, but he wasn't sure what he was supposed to do with all of it. Did they expect him to go racing off into battle or picking fights? I, uh, Shoto began, but Mina waved her hand. There's more. Oh, there is? Yes, Mina said with a bright laugh. Lift out the first layer. There's more underneath. So Shoto curiously poked at the leather case and realized the area under the first three bottles were set was actually a leather tray that could be removed. Below it was two more bottles and a leather belt. That's for carrying them if you wanna, Mina said, pointing first at the belt. Like mine, she added, thumbing the strip of leather that wrapped around her waist and then up over her shoulder. It held all sorts of little bottles in addition to the ones that swung from her those tiny strings. This, Mina went on very cheerfully, pointing to a plain bottle about the size of Shoto's hand and filled with what looked like a clear oil. It's just oil. But it makes you all tingly, and this one is for Mina, Kotsky interrupted sharply, while Shoto was staring at the bottle of oil and wondering how it related back to the word tingly. Mina paused and looked around at him before she said blankly, What? You can't give him that. Koski did panned, dropping his forehead into his hand in a very human sort of motion that made Shoto suddenly uncomfortable. The only other king Shoto knew would never let anyone see him experiencing, experiencing an actual emotion like this one. Exasperation, maybe, or embarrassment, or something like that. It's a wedding present! Mina countered, and again it struck Shoto how no one really talked to Kotsky like he was special. He let his wife talk to him like that? This is what you get when you get married, she protested. Bullshit, Kotsky snapped, lifting his head. Bullshit, that's a traditional gift. That's just you. Mina giggled. <laughs> it is. I didn't get any of that, Koski said, half sulking. No, I did, Mina said, rolling her eyes. It's what friends give to each other. Um, what is this? Shoto interrupted when Koski groaned loudly and rubbed his hand over his face again. The last bottle was a little more ornamented with the glass tapering to a point at the bottom. A wire frame surrounded it so it could be stood up, 
and it was filled with a pearly white liquid that glimmered and shone gold in the dim light. Oh, it makes sex better, Mina said cheerfully. Makes you want to fuck and makes it feel amazing when you do. There's three doses there, she added brightly. Shoto went completely still as he stared into the box and didn't know if he should laugh or scream. The second bottle, the one with the oil, suddenly made sense as well, and Shoto wondered if his cheeks had ever felt so hot. You broke him, Kotsky said wryly. Shoto, Kiri tried. Are you okay? Mina prodded. Denki said, Ooh, my turn! And shoved his way over to Shoto's side. Shoto looked up very weakly when he saw something thrust into his periphery. When he lifted his head, he found Denki holding some sort of light. It appeared to be a crystal piece of glass with a flat base and several various sized arms spiraling up and around each other. The glass was thin, and twinkling throughout the whole thing was a strange yellow light. <clears throat> Shoto took it from Dinky's hands because Dinky was holding it out to him, and when he did, the hair on his arms stood on end. Dinky stared at him very expectedly. It's beautiful, Shoto said, trying not to make it sound like a question. But what was it? Thank you, Denki said cheerfully. Everyone was staring at him. Shoto hesitantly pulled the glass thing a little closer to him and wondered if maybe he should put it down somewhere or... Kotsky sighed. <sighs> he made it. Shoto looked up at him with lightning and glount ground glass, right? He added, looking at Denki. Yeah, Denki said cheerfully. Lightning is really hot, so it melts the glass into pretty shapes. And I learned how to put lightning in glass, too, so it'll glow when it's dark. Shoto looked at the glass more closely, and that was indeed lightning flickering in yellows and whites in the glass tubes and the smell of magic actually tickled Shoto's nose. When Shoto looked up, Kiri, who had at some point wrapped his arms around Kotsky's waist was and was just leaning against him, held out a simple leather pouch. Shoto took it. It contained, thankfully, something recognizable. A necklace beaded with strange red stones and an, with an iridescent sheen. Shoto recognized them an instant later and could not help but look up in Kirishima with open awe. It was a dragon-scale necklace. Not just one or two beads, but a whole string of them, with a larger one right in the center. And some of them had designs, careful twists carved into them. He didn't know what to think of Mina and Denki's gifts. They were displays of skill, of each person's personal strengths, wrapped up in something unique. But this, Shoto could guess at. 
a necklace like this was priceless. Kiri furrowed his brow at Shoto. It's okay if you don't like it, he said forcefully cheerful. We weren't sure if you wore jewelry. Shoto was not, in fact, wearing any, and never really had. But Mina said it would be okay since I made it. Shoto looked down at the heavy beads sliding through his fingers. I... I don't have anything for all of you, he said quietly. I didn't know. Oh, that's fine, Kiri said quickly. They, stu- they stood staring at him very expectantly, and Shoto sat in dumb silence. A dragon scale necklace, a lightning in a glass, and three battle potions. Shoto really couldn't stand to think of the other two. And he had nothing. Kotsky said, Give us a minute. And when Shoto looked up, he found Mina and Kiri frowning at him thoughtfully. They both led Denki away without another word, although Mina kept looking back at Shoto over her shoulder. They moved across the room, and when they paused near the door, Kotsky called without turning around. Out! Shoto could tell by their body language that they were annoyed, though he couldn't quite see their faces clearly at this distance. They left the room and shut the door behind them. Well? Kotsky demanded, staring down at Shoto with his eyes flashing in challenge. Shoto shook himself from the daze he was in. He set his gifts on the table by his low chair, then because he didn't like looking up at Kotsky like this. He struggled out of the chair. He was taller than Kotsky now. That was satisfying. Shoto hadn't known what he was going to say until he said it. But when he opened his mouth, his voice came out hoarse, angry. This is unacceptable. Fuck did you just say to me, pretty boy? Kotsky demanded, taking a menacing step forward. They worked really hard on those gifts, and you didn't even say thank you, you spoiled little shit. Shoto drew up short, startled out of his anger for a moment. What? I... No. The gifts are quite lovely, actually, mostly. Shoto shook his head. I mean, he plowed on, trying to find his footing again. You are already married. Kotsky blinked at him. You can't marry me if you're already married, Shoto hissed. My father, you're in the Outlands now, Kotsky hissed. We do things our way. And then his eyes narrowed, my way. You think I give a fuck what your daddy thinks? Did you enter this accord just to have a closer vantage to spit in my face? Shoto hissed. He won't allow this. Kotsky took another step forward. A dry, popping sound grew 
drew Shoto's eyes to Koski's hands, and he saw little sparks falling from his fingertips. Your daddy isn't here, Prince, he spat, making the title sound like an insult. He doesn't allow me to do shit. And if you don't like it, you can go home. Shoto was so shocked he addressed the wrong things first. But we're married. Not here, we're not. Kotsky said, crossing his arms over his chest. Not until the ceremony. There, there was already a... Kotsky scoffed. <laughs> that boring-ass lecture from one of your stone-brained priests? That doesn't mean anything. I just agreed to that for your treaty. That's what I mean, Shoto protested. You signed a treaty based on a lie. I didn't lie. A misunderstanding, then, Shoto conceded. You're not eligible for marriage in my country if you've already got a spouse. Kotsky furrowed his brows. That's fucking stupid. I don't understand, Shoto snapped finally. Why you even agreed to this in the first place? Kotsky stared at him. Shoto bit his tongue and wondered exactly what kind of death wish he had. Stuck between Inji and Kotsky, Shoto had no idea which outcome was preferable. Kotsky could have killed him, or have him jailed, or any number of humiliations. Or he could go home to Inji in complete disgrace. Why did you? Koski demanded. You clearly don't want to be here. It's so obvious just how highly you think of me. Shoto stared at him and finally remembered himself and what he was supposed to be doing. Earning Koski's trust. Toppling this strange foreign kingdom from the inside out. He wanted to offer you my sister, Shoto said coldly. She didn't want to be married off to a strange man in a strange land for the sake of some political maneuvering. Kotsky's face went cold as stone, his eyes getting flinty and fierce. So you stepped in front of the blade? Yes. Shoto stared at a spot on his chest and wondered what he was, what he thought he was doing. The truth, even a truth strategically told, was a dangerous thing to give up in Inji's world. Inji always had some way to turn it to his advantage. Shoto had known Kotsky for less than a day at this point, but there was still something very strange about the man that Shoto couldn't stop seeing. He wore his emotions in every expression. He seemed guileless, his anger and annoyance at everything Shoto did written all over his face. But it wasn't like Inji, carefully revealed and sharpened to flay. Koski's anger wasn't a tool. If you want to go home, I'm not stopping you. Koski spat finally. Kiri'll take you if you ask, and I'll just find another way to. He cut himself off. Another way to what?
to end the raids on my villages, Kotsky hissed. And Shoto blinked in shock. He really didn't know the details of the Outland Treaty negotiation. He just knew Inji hadn't offered much aside from Shoto. Kotsky clenched his fist. Your lovely father agreed to a ceasefire on the Break Ridge border if I took you off his hands, he said venomously. Shoto narrowed his eyes. The fighting on the border was sporadic and violent, but Shoto also knew that for every tiny pocket village Inji's troops took out, a whole platoon were lost to rock slides or sneak attacks by roving hillside caravans. A ceasefire there benefited Inji, strategically far more than it benefited Kotsky, who had the advantage throughout the whole of the contested land. It may have been a fight over territory, but the people living on that land supported Kotsky and outnumbered Inji's troops by a decent enough margin. Shoto couldn't see Inji's pride conceding the strip of land, but nor could he see it being terribly difficult to convince his father to agree to a ceasefire there, not when the fighting in the hills was such a drain on Inji's resources. Shoto's confusion must have shown on his face. I agreed to let him work the mine on Stone Slip, Kotsky said, and for free fair trade on our caravans. He agreed to stop burning my villages, and also to use the Stone Slip mine will revert back to Outland hands exclusively upon his death. Shoto frowned, digesting that information. It still seemed to Shoto that if Kotsky had wanted a husband, then the deal benefited Inji much more than Kotsky. It didn't surprise Shoto that had been Inji's design, but why had Kotsky agreed? I don't want to go back, Shoto said, because he needed time to think, and he couldn't do that if he was flying back to Inji on Kiri's back. I want to honor the accord between our people, he said as firmly as he could. That was true, too. Well, sort of. Kotsky frowned at him, and then he shrugged, nodded. I'll have him move your things to a private room, he said after a long, pregnant pause. No, Shoto said, maybe a little too sharply. If, if your people live here, I should too, my lord. Kotsky gave him a very flat look and Shoto said quietly, Kotsky. I won't stop you, Kotsky said, but I'm not sure you'll enjoy it, he added. We both want this arrangement to succeed. Shoto said reasonably, and Kotsky nodded. If I take a separate room, people will notice. Rumors have a tendency of finding their way back to my father. He didn't know I was married, Kotsky said with a wry quirk to his lips. I'm not sure how he missed that, Shoto bit out. 
but unless you want this agreement to crumble, by the time he finds out, this should all appear legitimate. As legitimate as it can, Shoto added with a single humorless laugh. Kotsky considered him in silence and then said, No one knows yet that you rode in with me. There will be a celebration in your honor to honor your arrival when the caravan arrives in a few days' time. If you want to, be alone during that time. Can I stay here? Shoto asked, shrugging his shoulder towards the bed behind him. Ngotsky nodded. What about, uh, you said, um, there was another ceremony. I'm not doing that, Kotsky said very firmly. For one, we have to live together for six months before we can do that. And for two, my people actually give a shit about adjoining. We don't do them just for fucking politics. They matter. Shoto nodded. Will people... Will people care if we don't? Kotsky shrugged a little sulkily. They won't expect one for a while anyways. He said finally, which told Shoto all he needed to. Kotsky didn't actually know himself. And, if Shoto would hazard a guess, he had shared the ceremony with the others. Shoto nodded, and then Kotsky nodded, and then he turned wordlessly and walked away. Shoto waited for him to come back, for any one of them to come back, but they didn't. So Shoto looked at the gifts arrayed on his table and thought of the people who had made them and wondered how a man as coarse and prickly as Kotsky had wound up with three people who seemed so earnest and kind, if not by political arrangement. He carefully packed the bottles back into the leather case and tried not to think about the last two bottles too hard. He arranged Denki's glass light in the center of the little table, and he sat down in the pile of furs and pillows with Kiri's necklace in hand. He was distracted momentarily by how soft the bed was. He sunk into it, and he was so surrounded by pillows he felt like he was floating. The white fur was impossibly soft, and Shoto felt himself running one hand over the blankets and the other over the dragon scale beads. He had been right to stop Enji from sending Fuyumi. She would have crumbled into a sobbing mess by now, with Enji or with Kotsky speaking so roughly, and being told she must share her new husband with three other people and also that she must deduce how such a contradictory man worked, and also how to earn his trust and pry information out of him. Fiumi would not have been suited for this at all. Shoto wasn't sure anyone was, really. There was something soothing about the strange gray light that filtered in through the thin black glass. And Shoto hadn't slept at all the night before. Not really. 
He'd been so anxious. He hadn't done more than doze for a few minutes at a time. So when relaxation crept in, as he absently studied Kiri's necklace, he had no defense against it. The fur was too soft. Too much had happened over the past day, and aside from that, he'd been on edge for weeks preparing for all of this. He slept without meaning to, sprawled on top of the low pallet with Kiri's necklace in his hand and his booted feet still on the floor. That was not, however, how he woke up. And it was disorienting at first, as he pieced together everything that was different. It was dark in the sleeping hall. It would have been pitch black if not for the soft yellow flicker of Denki's gift. The necklace was sitting beside it on the table, and beside that, someone had left a bowl and a cup. Shoto's boots weren't on his feet anymore, and he was under one of the furs, and that realization sent nauseous shock through his system. Someone, some servant or chambermaid, had taken off his shoes and tucked his legs up onto the pallet and covered him in a warm fur, and he had slept through it all. That he'd left himself so unguarded. He would have to be careful here, not to exhaust himself like that again. He wouldn't have trusted himself to sleep that deeply in Inji's palace, much less here. He sat up a little and looked around, wincing when he realized he'd soaked his silk tunic and woolen waistcoat with sweat in his sleep. He couldn't see much in the dim light. It really, it was really just a soft, unobtrusive glow. No one was moving. All Shoto could hear was quiet, steady breathing. He quietly reached for the bowl and peered into it, but it was too dark to really see much. He could smell it, though. Something rich and hearty, and he started shoveling it into his mouth before he could think better of it. It was cold stew, something that had probably been utterly delicious a few hours ago before it had cooled and a film of fat had settled on top. Shoto didn't really care. He was too hungry to taste much. He didn't look back up until the stew was gone and he reached out to find out what was in the cup. He realized then that someone had set a honey cake on the table and that it had been hidden by the bowl. Shoto had the strongest feeling that it had been Kiri. Shoto didn't know what was in the cup, but he drank it anyways. It was spicy and thin, and he couldn't tell if it was supposed to be served cool or hot. The honey cake was familiar, at least, although the Outland people seemed to make a much denser pastry than Shoto's people did. It was rich and filling, and he ate all of it in nearly complete silence, like a child sneaking sweets it wasn't supposed to have. He lay in the dark for a long time after that, watching the lightning in his glass flicker. It had been so foolish of him to rush off with Kotsky without any of his things.
if he thought very hard about it. He was furious Kotsky had intended to just leave him there without a word the morning after their wedding. And then, well, Shota was actually glad no one had woke him up. But it, it also felt wrong somehow. Disrespectful. He was royalty. And he was sleeping in his day clothes and sneaking cold stew in the dark. And he didn't even have his own room. And, well, Kotsky had offered one, so he supposed he couldn't fault him for that. But the fact that they didn't already have their own rooms to begin with? What was the point of building castles like kings if they were just going to clump together in them like nomadic heathens? He put his back to the light, and now he was staring into a shadowy room, face pressed to one fur with another slung around his hips. He was uncomfortable in his clothes, but it seemed too much effort to try and wriggle out of them alone, not when Ida had helped him lace, had helped lace him in. A sniffle and a shuffle of blankets made Shoto still. Kotsky... It was Kiri, whispering in the close quiet. His voice seemed to be coming from the center of the room. And Shoto felt an uncomfortable realization squirm in his chest. They were laying on the huge bed sunk into the floor rather than their own pallets like Shoto was. Kotsky! The sound carried well in this room. Kiri wasn't being loud at all, but Shoto could still hear him. It probably wouldn't have been enough to wake him from sleep, but since he was barely even dozing after sleeping for hours... Kotsky! Kiri whined, and Shoto heard more shuffling before a fuzzy voice finally snapped back. Huh? Wake up! Kiri whispered, I can't sleep. Kotsky sniffled and mumbled something incomprehensible, voice falling off at the end, and then he hissed, Ow! Kiri, what the fuck? I can't sleep, Kiri said again. Don't bite me. The blankets shuffled again, and then they were still. What's wrong? Kotsky asked. There were no other change in the steady, rhythmic breathing from the other two. One of them, Shoto guessed Dinky, was snoring rather loudly. I had a dream, and then I woke up, and now I can't sleep. Bad dream? No, Kiri said. Don't remember. Something about flying. So, a good dream. Kotsky replied sleepily. Fuck you waking me up for. Kiri sighed. I just... I don't understand. He said simply. Kotsky sighed very deeply. It's... It's political, sweetheart. But what does that mean? It means, it means he's here because he thinks it'll be good for his country. 
There was a long pause, and Kiri said nothing. It... Hmm. Uh... Shoto found himself lifting his head from the pillow a bit so he could hear better. He'd never considered himself the type of man to eavesdrop. But then, he hadn't exactly planned to be married off to a heathenous barbarian king to be the latest addition to a fucking harem. So maybe there was a first time for everything. He doesn't want to be with you? Kiri said sadly. Uh, no. He doesn't much like me. And you don't want to be with him? No. Then why? Because that's what kings do sometimes. They gotta do shit they don't want to do so people don't die. Prince Shoto is supposed to be here too. To show us his father's trust in us. And that he wants peace with us. He's not going to start a war with his son's husband. And no wars, no fighting. But you love fighting. Not this kind. Kotsky hissed. As long as Prince Shoto is here, it means all the tribes don't have to worry about King Inji's soldiers attacking them. And some other stuff about trade that you'd get bored by. Get it? I guess. But why can't you just agree to not fight each other? Things get complicated when you've got whole countries involved, sweetheart. I liked it better when you weren't a king, Carrie whispered sadly. Kotsky was quiet for a long time before he finally said, I'm sorry. I miss... I know. When is he coming back? I told you. He's not. Kiri groaned in wordless frustration. You people are so confusing. Yeah... Kosky said, we got a whole lot of fucking life into a real short period of time compared to you. Kind of makes us crazy. Kiri whispered back very seriously, don't say that. Kosky didn't reply, and neither of them spoke for a long time, and then Kiri said very quizzically with no prompting, do we have to have sex with your prince? Shoto almost choked on his inhale. Instead, he clapped one hand furiously over his own mouth to keep from cursing. Kotsky just laughed. (laughs) Not pretty enough for you, sweetheart. He's plenty pretty. He's just mean, Kiri complained, and for some reason, that gave Shoto pause. Maybe because Kiri and Mina and Danky too, had done nothing but smile at Shoto and give him gifts. Gifts he hadn't even thanked them for. Well, I doubt that bastard is interested, but you can ask him if you want. Kotsky snickered back. Shoto's cheeks got fearfully hot. He was worried enough about Kotsky as it was. He was going to have to fend off a 
Cursed Dragon 2? The blankets suddenly rustled again, and then Shoto heard a slow, slick sound that took a long time for Shoto to parse out what it was. A kiss. A long one. Or maybe several shorter ones? Shoto could hear everything. The brush of skin against skin, the slide of furs, the wet click of them breaking apart for air. Shoto almost buried his head under a pillow, except now he was afraid if he moved, they'd know he'd been listening. There was a little gasp, and then Kotsky laughed. <laughs> That's enough. It's too late for this. Everyone's sleeping. Kiri replied, and his voice went low, and so different from the bright, curious innocence of just a few moments before. We'll wake him up, Koski replied, but he didn't seem too terribly invested in his own argument. I'll be quiet. You're never quiet. Kiri didn't respond, and Shoto foolishly hoped that that would be the end of it. It was not. He lay very still, hands still clasped over his mouth and staring into the darkness, in the middle of the room and listened to just about every quiet, filthy sound he had ever had the chance to experience himself or the experience to even imagine. Skin against skin and wet lips and sharp, high gasps from Kiri that turned into low, choked-off moans and an awful, restrained, slick slap that was just about the most graphic thing Shoto had ever heard in his life. It went on a lot longer than he would have expected. The gradual change in the quality of Kiri's breaths, a very special kind of torture. He was quiet, or at least as quiet as he'd been when he was talking. Shoto probably could have slept through it if he had just been asleep. But Shoto was not asleep, and it was all he could hear. Somewhere around the time Kiri whined, sharp and high and louder than normal, and the sound was cut off like a hand had been pressed to his lips. It fully struck Shoto that he was listening to his husband fuck a dragon in the middle of his harem fuck nest, and Shoto had to bite his lips together to keep from laughing while hysterical tears sprung to his eyes. What would his father say about all this? Kiri finally gave one sharp, full-throated gasp, mouth still muffled, and then went mo silent, mostly. A moment later, Shoto heard Kotsky grunt, both of them still. And then Kotsky grunted again. Ow! Careful! Mina's voice was muffled and low, like she had her face pressed into a pillow. You'll wake up Prince Stick up his ass. Will not, Kiri hissed back. 
He didn't even wake up when Koski took off his boots for him. Shoto's stomach churned and his cheeks heated with an awful swell of embarrassment and something like shame or anger or violation. A servant taking off his boots was one thing, but Kotsky doing it? How close he'd have been, how careful not to wake Shoto, how vulnerable Shoto would have been, oblivious to any touch or expression Kotsky may have had. It was the first moment that Shoto truly felt that he hated King Kotsky Bakugo. What was he getting at, removing a man's shoes? It just felt wrong. Shoto still very carefully took his hand away from his mouth and forced himself to breathe deep and slow and heavy despite the fact that his heart was beating frantically just in case they stopped to listen. Well, fine. Then don't wake Dinky up, Mina complained. Her voice was louder than theirs had been. Nothing can wake Dinky up, Kotsky muttered. It was true. Dinky's loud, rumbling snore hadn't even wavered. Just shut up, Mina groaned. No one else talked. Shoto heard them settle into the blankets, and then he heard one more kiss, gentle and not so frantic as before. The room finally went quiet again. Shoto didn't relax until he was certain all three of them were asleep again. And then even then, he still couldn't sleep himself, head too full of how despised he was by everyone around him and also the awful private thing he'd had to listen in on. What on earth had he gotten himself into? End chapter two. And now we go on to chapter three tomorrow.